Well, good morning to everybody out here on the lot here at the Hub, and good morning to everybody that is watching online as well. So good to be together with all of you that is Redemption Church. Now, before we get underway today, a little bit of housekeeping I want to do here real quick. One is going to sound self-promoting, but it's not. It's actually spouse-promoting. And what I mean by that is typically I don't encourage or push this idea of checking out the Everyday Missionary Podcast. It's the podcast we offer every single week. But this week, I interviewed my wife, and she's the smart one of the Boswell clan. So if you want to hear from my wife some really interesting, thoughtful things about a very delicate topic, check out the Everyday Missionary. She did a great job. And what's fun about that is uh, when I sat her down, I didn't tell her one thing I was going to ask her. She was all hot seat the whole time, didn't give her a single question in advance. She did a great job, and I think it's very informative. So you might check that out. That is the first thing you want to know about. And then the second thing is I'm going to tell you something where we I'm saying we don't know everything yet, but we're trying to work on things right now. So um, as you know, we're planning on being out here on the lot all the way through September. That's our plan at this point. And uh, we're, of course, interacting with the school and we're hoping to get back in there come the fall. That's our thing. But we're also looking at other options as well. And so we don't know how everything kind of kind of puts together yet or falls together yet, but we just want you to know that, hey, we're working on a lot of different options because it's been awesome to, to meet together over the summer. We want to protect that as much as we humanly can, so we're praying a lot, we're planning a lot, we're working a lot on a lot of different things, and so again, we just want you to know kind of what's going on right now. We're trying to do some stuff, and then hopefully in the next two weeks or so, We'll have a little bit more concrete uh, kind of things that we can tell you about and share with you from there. So that's some of the housekeeping for today, but that's not necessarily why we're here. We are here together because we are doing a series over the summer that we've entitled Called. And the essence of this is dear to my heart because what I love about the Bible, what I love about the Christian faith is that so often what it tells us is that we are called into this relationship with Christ Not just so we can be internally edified, though that's true, but we are called for the sake of the world. In fact, the very first calling we ever see in the Bible is God calls Abraham into a relationship, but it's a relationship that is designed to go out and transform all the nations, not just Abraham's tribe, but all tribes of all people of all times God wants to bless, to move, and to heal. And so that is the essence of the calling to Abraham, and that is still the essence of of the calling to us. Now in this series, especially the last couple of weeks, it's been a little bit rough, right? Like it started off kind of encouraging and then the last two weeks, man, we were dealing with some hard things. And it reminds us of this truth that our calling, it is not always going to be easy and it's not always going to be fun. And there's going to be some occasions where our calling literally feels counterintuitive to the normal ways we do life in the world. In fact, we're born into a world that has certain norms and conditions, and we just sort of just acclimate to those conditions. And then when you come in contact with Christ and what he wants to do in the world, it's so upside down and backwards, you almost have to unlearn to learn what it is we're supposed to do. But when we look at the big picture of what his calling is on our lives, it is to be a people on mission in such a way that we are willing to self-sacrifice some of our priorities and agenda for the sake of his priority and his agenda. And so that is the heart of this whole series, trying to understand what it is exactly he has for us. And I think today the theme that we're looking at gets right to the heart in many ways 
of what it is we are called to do. It's a calling that's beautiful, that is radical, that if we can own it and do it and live it and export it, it will literally change the world. I promise you, if we can do this well, it will change the world. But it is something that is very hard to access and to play out. So I want to start it in the book of Colossians. Paul's writing to a church that he's never visited but he's very impressed with their heart, with their tenacity, with their focus in their Christian faith. And about three quarters of the way through this little letter that he writes, he gives them both a command and a commission simultaneously. It says in chapter three, verse 15, he says, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Our theme for the day, our calling for the day is the calling to peace. Now, if you have our app and our app are some notes that you can follow along with if you'd like to do that today. But right now, I'm just going to go ahead and pray for us, right? So that we can absorb what he has for us and that we can own it, right? I, I'm, I'll tell you just personally, I'm so worn out on being a learner of the Bible. I really want to be a doer of the Bible, right? Like a doer. I've learned a lot of it over the course of time, but I want to make sure that more than just filling my head with something, I'm filling the world with what God wants me to do based on his word. And so I want to pray that today we are just owning what it means to have peace, to be peace, and to engage in peace for our world. Let's pray together. Jesus, you said blessed are the peacemakers. And that is a hard task. I mean, if there's anything we've seen in our culture in recent months and years is that peace is very hard to find sometimes. Division comes easy. Discord comes easy. uh, Making fun of somebody that doesn't agree with us comes easy. uh, Just all sorts of things that, that are almost completely contrary to your kingdom. And so I pray that as we engage in your word today, that it would engage with us. And that we would have a holy discontent, that we would be somewhat even uncomfortable with the fact that sometimes some of the division we see in our world doesn't come from the hands of worldly people, but it can come from your own people, and that we would be a different people. And as much as we say your word is truth, that we would believe this message on peace is your truth, and that we are to sense it and we are to do it. And so, Jesus, we look to you to guide us and show us, to help us, to maybe confront us, and certainly to inspire us. And so we look to you now in your good and kind name. Amen. So I was thinking about this particular talk today and and the word peace, and I thought, what an interesting word. Of all the words in our series, holiness, good, things like that, I thought peace is the word that oftentimes um, is, is sort of misused or misapplied in the context of the ways of the world. So I think about this at the birth of the church in the first century, the church was born into a, a scenario where the motto of the scenario was Pax Romana, which literally means the peace of Rome. But for peace in Rome, it came through an empire and it came at the tip of a sword. And so the way that the church was born into this context was thinking that, hey, what peace is in the world is whoever has the most strength wins and keeps the peace. Which is probably why Jesus's vision of peace then becomes so radical because it's not the kind of peace that they envisioned. But see, this extends even into our more modern era, right? Think about how the West was settled. Colt 45, peacemaker, right? 
We said a weapon is what makes peace. And it didn't just stop there. In fact, the Kalashnikov family out of Russia, which you may not be familiar with that name, but they are the family and the manufacturer of the uh, AK-47, right? And they recently changed their logo and their motto to weapons of peace. And so the next time you see the Taliban with an AK-47, just remember that the motto is, that is a weapon of peace. But that's how we roll. The B-38, ugly, ugly bomber that we built back in the day in the 40s and 50s, but we called it the Peacemaker. But it was a cool plane because they actually put a nuclear reactor on the plane to power it. And they said, that's a bad idea. Let's just put a nuclear weapon inside a missile and we'll call that the Peacekeeper. And so that's what we labeled it. And right now we have in theaters and streaming online, we have the Suicide Squad. And in the Suicide Squad is a particular character. His name is the Peacemaker. And the Peacemaker, what he's known for is killing everybody in his path to getting to peace. And so you see the irony of this whole thing where so often in our world and in our culture, we take this word that should mean one thing, but we apply it to all of these other things and we treat it as though the real route to peace is whoever has the most power. And hopefully what the person with the most power or the entity with the most strength, they're benevolent enough to not use that against other people. That's sort of the variation of peace that we have been reared with in our world. That's why I suspect sometimes that when we start to look at biblical peace and we see this word come up throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testament, we have to sometimes stop and say, okay, what is it intending to mean and how is that different than the way we seem to use it in our own particular context as a race? And so I want to give a little bit of a generic difference between the two. I want to first tell you about what kind of earthly peace seems to imply and then how biblical peace, this peace that Jesus is advocating for, is so radically different. And so if you're taking notes, there's this first definition and it's about artificial peace. And artificial peace is all about truce and the absence of strife. Artificial peace settles for truce and the absence of strife. And I think what's really tragic is so often in our lives and relationships, we settle for this kind of peace, right? You might be in a marriage where you just go, you know what, if we're not fighting, that's peace. Or you might be raising a teenager right now and you're like, if we're not in a total like knockdown drag out, if they're just in their room quiet and I'm in the living room quiet, whew, we have a peaceful home tonight, right? Maybe you're in that space. Or we look at our society, our culture, our political parties, or whatever else. If they're not tweeting anger against one another for that day, whew, it's a peaceful day, right? How tragic that we settle for this idea that the absence of fighting is considered peace. Because that's not what God had in mind. He didn't come to Abraham and say, Abraham, through you, all the nations will find a truce. That's not his promise. He says, I want to bless them. And at the birth of Christ, when the angels came and they were proclaiming, they didn't say glory to God on the highest and truce on earth to all men. That wasn't it. And Jesus didn't say, blessed are the truce makers, for they will have a job next year when the truce falls apart, right? He doesn't say any of that because there's something deeper in this idea of peace that the Bible is getting at. It's far more radical. In fact, a true peace, a healthy definition is that true peace, in your notes, is about trust. It's about trust 
and the presence of unity. It's about a trust in God. And from that, you want to seek a unity among people that is so cohesive, so beautiful, so counter-cultural and counter-worldly that there's an authentic unity one to another, that that's the thing that we are to labor for. Because the peace of the Bible, the peace that is to be our passion and ambition and expression is not simply to be, hey, if it's preventative, that's good enough. I'll settle for prevention. No, our mission, our calling is restorative, right? We're to come into an environment as the people of God with a vision of God's peace for the world. And we are to work at all cost with great heart and deep prayers to do those things that bring peace to a world that so often is struggling to figure out what it is, even if it means we have to use weapons, warfare, control to forge a peace. This is why I'm saying our calling is unique, special, it's different, and it's challenging. And so I want to kind of just build this out a little bit. And I want to start with this first reality that we have to lock into. Like you have to get the first parts if you're going to be able to then export this to the world around you. And so if you're taking notes, it's number one in your notes. Understanding true peace starts by seeing how Jesus made peace for us. It starts by understanding how Jesus made peace for us. If you're really going to get it, if you're going to understand the essence of what this peace is, you need to start with him and what he did. I say that because, again, just as with holiness, where holiness means pretty much be opposite of the world, when it comes to peace, what Jesus' peace is saying is pretty much be opposite of the world in the way that it tries to fabricate peace. And I think the best way to do this then is to look at his own expression, his own activity, his own work, and his own words. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus talks about this. He he says this, he says, I'm leaving you with a gift, verse 27, and the gift is peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Now, I love this because part of that even hints at this idea of whatever this peace is should alleviate the troubles and fears of our life. And so if you say to yourself a lot, that's scary. Oh, that's fearful. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. Part of that just kind of lets us know like, ding, ding, ding. Maybe I should focus more on what God has because he can give me the peace that the conditions of the world can't give me. Aside from that, though, what I see what he's doing here is he says, first off, he is the exclusive source of peace. Notice that. He says, I'm going to give you a kind of peace that the world can't give. When he's saying that, he's saying, whatever the world gives this peace is not the variation I offer because it's predicated on certain conditions being just right for your kind of peace. But he says, no, I give you something that transcends all of that. Therefore, the peace of Christ can't be fabricated by this world. And part of that is because it's not the same variety as this world. Like I keep saying, the peace of this world is all about using security or strength to create stalemates. That's a truce, right? It's just outpowering the other person, group, thing, country enough to get what we want for a season. But it always moves around, right? Nobody gets to hold on to it forever. But see, for Jesus, he's not interested in the absence of strife. He's actually interested in the presence of connection, of relationship, of unity. Romans chapter 5, starts in verse 1. It says, Therefore, 
Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. And notice how this comes and the conditions in which the world was when the peace comes. Verse 6 says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God, he says, showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I want you to keep noticing the juxtaposition. He comes for unwanted, unlovelies, undesired, enemies, those against him. So I want you to notice this is his kind of piece here, right? He says, and since we've been made right with God in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from his condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. From this, verse 11, he says, we can rejoice in the wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Now, I want to tell you in that section, there is a ton that is there, right? I would love to just sit here and unpack that for a while. We don't have time to unpack it, but I want to get in high orbit, and I want to point out three simple things that are here. The first thing is that Jesus sought peace for his enemies. So when we're starting to rifle around what peace looks like, we have to think about the peace that Jesus seeks, right? So he doesn't seek retribution. He says, no, I want peace for you. Moreover, the second thing you see here is that he was willing to suffer to make that peace possible. He says, you're God's enemies. You've picked the fight. You don't want him in your life, but don't sweat it. You don't even know what you don't know. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to do what I'm going to do so you can come to realize what you don't know and you can know something else. You can know somebody that becomes your friend. Jesus is in the business of pushing a peace that takes enemies and makes them allies that takes foes and makes them friends. So I want to be clear when we start to talk about peace and it sounds all rosy and nice and Christmassy and everything else. No, peace is hard work. Peace is self-sacrifice. Peace is swallowing our pride, our vision of how we want our lives for us to be, right? It's different. And what I love about this is not only does it create a reason for us to have gratitude and worship, look what Jesus has done for us, but it also creates an example for us to live out, to pursue, to follow. But see, that's, this has to be more than just the example. It has to embed itself deeper into our hearts and lives to really play out. And so from that, if we're really going to ooze peace and we're not going to just try to white knuckle and fabricate it, then we have to go to the deeper source. And that's number two in your notes. Sensing true peace means seeking the God of peace, right? Sensing true peace means you actually have to seek the source because we are not the source of peace. He is the source of peace. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Paul says, I pray that God, the source of hope, which that'll be next week, will be great. Pastor Scott's gonna be doing that. He says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. And then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the densest little nuggets 
uh, in the Bible. There's so much there that you could really just dig into. But what's important again for us is just to focus on the center point of this, right? He says, God does the filling and God does the filling as you are trusting and seeking. I, I, I know sometimes in my own life, I'm like, man, why don't I, I sense the power of God, the potency of God, the promises of God played out of my life in an emotional, tangible, powerful way. Like, why do I struggle with that? And then I come back to this and I go, right, because I'm busy doing all sorts of other things, but not trusting or seeking. And so there's always this pattern. If you do this, then he will do that. That's the way God likes to work. He wants you to pursue him and then he fills you. He wants you to seek him and that he will dump all this stuff into you. And that's what the promise is here as well. And what I dig about this is that when the Holy Spirit tops you off, you are unstoppable, right? When you seek him, he fills this up in you. He gives you joy. He gives you peace because you trust in him. So you say, all right, Matt, I'm feeling you. I, I hear it. I see it. I want it. I don't want to have a lackluster uh, faith. I don't want to just be half-baked in my walk with Christ. I want to go in, all in, all the way. I want to sense these things, experience his presence and power. I want to be a person of peace. How do I do it? I take you to one of the passages I probably take you to like five times a year as a church because I think it's a roadmap. It's not just like, oh, that's so nice. It's lovely. Stitch it on a pillow, put it on a frame. It's more than that. It's a map on how to maybe experience some of these things. Philippians chapter four. Paul writes, don't worry about anything. Go, great, how would I do that? He says, well, here's the, here's the help. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. And then, remember where I said God wants us to do things and then he reciprocates something? Well, he says, don't do this, do this instead. And then you will experience God's, God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And so we're given a roadmap, right? Do this, don't do that. Go to God and he's gonna give you peace. He's gonna do it in your heart, in your mind, that deepest part of you that, man, nothing else can really touch but him. Paul then doubles down in verse eight. He says, fix your thoughts, what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting them into practice. All the things that you've learned and received from me, everything you've heard and you saw me do. And then, there's a then again, the God of peace will be with you. Just, just meditate on that in your life maybe over the next week or two weeks, right? Think about that. Shift out of thinking about all of your problems and instead start going to God and talking to God about all of your problems. It doesn't mean you don't have problems or problems go away. He's just saying, don't just fixate on them, but rather fix your mind on the God who is there for the problems. He's saying, stop cursing your situation and instead start thanking God in the midst of your situation. Again, that doesn't mean, thank you God for my terrible situation. I think sometimes people get confused and think, oh, I'm supposed to thank God for my misery. No, you're to thank God in your misery. That's a different thing. You're to be perpetually thankful even when it's hard and painful and you feel just like, man, I don't even know if I can go on. But I love the fact that he says, fix your thoughts, right? Just make that your bullseye to focus on the things that are life-giving instead of the things that are life-robbing. It's so easy for us to get up in our own heads, right? 
just get up in our own heads and we're just rifling through all of the stuff over and over and over. We're playing it out over and over again. And Paul says, do yourself a favor. If you're going to waste a lot of words, waste them toward God in prayer. Waste them toward God in thankfulness because guess what? That's not wasting it, right? That's actually investing it in ways that are positive because he says, then God will guard you in peace and God will be with you as the God of peace. I mean, those are pretty important promises. But there's another layer to this that I don't want to miss. And that is, I don't want us to start looking at this topic and saying, okay, so the goal then is that I go to God, I seek him in all of this hardship, he gives me peace, and now I have a good centered psychology, right? I have a personal peace in my heart, me and God, we've established this sense of kind of utopia and me, and that's where it stops. No, God wants you to be a conduit, not a cul-de-sac. And part of this is true even to peace. He doesn't want you to have peace and sense peace and be at peace and then not share that peace. Because if anything, he says, I will give you even greater peace when you engage in the project of sharing that peace with other people. In fact, it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Then, there's another then, the God of love and peace will be with you. See, here's what's cool. There's a cycle, right? So you look at Philippians. Seek God and he will give you peace. Then you look at 2 Corinthians and what he says is, and that peace that he gives you when you give it to other people, he will show up and give you even more peace, right? So it's not enough to say it stops with you. No, peace goes to another level. It's next level stuff. When then you say, I'm gonna go out of my way to try to bring peace to the lives of other people. I'm gonna live in peace with other people. I'm gonna swallow my words. I'm gonna swallow my thoughts. I'm gonna swallow my opinions if it doesn't forge peace. Because I know what my real objective and goal is. It's to be like Jesus who forges peace. I wanna be like Jesus in the sense that I wanna live out a context of peace. And so I want God's peace in me so I can give God's peace to others. And from that, I get more of the same. That's the formula that he creates. That pretty much takes us to number three in your notes. True peace becomes real by practicing the things that make peace tangible in the world. True peace becomes real by practicing the things that make peace tangible in the world. So I go back to the neighborhood of Colossians chapter three, where we originally were at the beginning of the message. But I start in verse 11. Paul says, this new life in Christ is all that matters, right? So he's telling us all of our priorities and agenda, what matters most is Christ and that he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be holy as his people, you must, dot, dot, dot. I'm gonna stop there for a second because I want us to be clear what he's getting at. He says, you must. He doesn't say you should, you ought, you might consider, you might volunteer for. He's like, hey, if Christ is all that matters, if he's really first, then what I'm about to say next, we must embrace. It's all that matters. It's why he's laid claim to our life to do a certain thing. So what is the thing we're meant to do? Verse 12, he says, every single one of us must close, or close ourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. 
Now, there's a lot there, but I'm going to break it down to three very simple things. First of all, he says, here's what you're supposed to do. You are to put on the clothing of these traits. And he has a bunch of traits. And I could break those all out, but you know what? I almost don't need to. You can read those and be like, yeah, I get the general idea. If I was building a fence around the property that is my life, and each one of those things was a fence post to build a fence, you, you know what the climate of that fenced-in area should look like then. Right? These are to be true of all of us. Tenderhearted, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, making allowance, forgiveness, and love. That's the what. The why? Well, it's because Jesus did the same thing for you. Right? Every time we get frustrated at somebody, sick of somebody, peeved at somebody, yes, peeved, whatever your thing is, we want to go, oh, wait, but, but I was an enemy and Jesus became my friend and made me friends of God. I want to do things like Jesus did because he did it for me. That's the why. And the how is letting his peace rule in your hearts. The only way you're going to be able to pull off that list and be like Jesus is that his peace is ruling your life. You've surrendered yourself to his peace. And the only way you do that is just go back to your notes. Point number one, point number two. Because as he says in verse 15, as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. It just goes right back to our calling, right? And so we don't need to look far to know that the world has plenty of division. And if there's anything the world needs in the midst of the division is to be able to look at God's people and see peace in their lives. So we're not all freaked out about whatever's going on in our nation, our state, our world. We, we should be the most like chill people there are because we have been offered a peace that is transcendent of this world. The world is desperate to see that out of God's people. As soon as we're frantic and fretting and worried and everything, just witness blown again. But then more than just having peace in our own lives, we need to go out of our way to be the peacemakers, authentic creators of peace, not truce people, peacemaking people. And what's amazing about that to me, and I'm gonna close with this, is that it's more than just an awareness of what the Bible says, which is why I started off the way I did saying, I don't want to just simply know more of the Bible. I want to live out what it says because that's what Jesus wants. And that's more than knowledge. It's actual wisdom. We need to be a wise people as we interact with our world to seek peace. In fact, I close with the book of James chapter three. He says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth of boasting, boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For whoever is therefore jealous and has selfish ambition, you will find disorder and evil of every kind. The absence of peace is disorder. The absence of unity is dysfunction. So we're getting a sense of Earthly wisdom, godly wisdom, earthly peace, godly peace. So what is the wisdom of God that shows true peace? Well, the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure. But then also it, it loves peace, wants peace. It doesn't like to be the arguer, the dissenter, the fighter, the rebel. It loves peace. It's gentle at all times, even on social media. It's willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds it shows no favoritism and it is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, 
You ask so much. Yet what's cool is you give even more. You give us what we need. But I love the dichotomy throughout this entire thing today. It's like, if you this, then all that. It's like you call us to trust you, to lean into the things that are going to be hard to do. But if we do those, we will sense your peace in a way that we can never find in any other corner of this world. And so may we be people filled by your peace and therefore people who are ambassadors of peace. May we love peace at all costs. May we love peace as you loved peace so much so that you came for your enemies to make them friends. May it be your heart laid in your people to bring transformation to this world because I believe Jesus if we really live this do this seek this man that's where change will happen it doesn't happen anywhere else it happens through you by you for you and through your people so we thank you Jesus in your good name amen